hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah. I'm reading chapter 41, verses 21 to 29. So, invite your reverent attention to the word of God and may we hear in faith what uh, the prophet has said. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. And from the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. We began our service this morning by acknowledging a confessional statement. I'll bring it to your attention again. Simply ask you a question. It's a very important question. Uh, are there really not more gods than one? I mean, come on, Grace Bible Church. I mean, this, you know, come into the 21st century. Aren't there really a lot of roads to heaven? Isn't the answer of the confession, there is but one only, the living and true God, isn't that the height of arrogance and pride? Do you really believe that? I mean, with the, the winds of progressivism and pluralism blowing everywhere, uh, can't we uh, confess that, well, there's got to be more than one? Great issue upon which uh, is decisive uh, not only the understanding of the Christian faith, but really the greatest issue of all of life. Who can deliver on the promises of eternity? And how many gods are there that can so deliver? Well, there's a court case uh, that answers this question. You and I live in a culture, certainly if any of you are lawyers, you know the importance of legal precedents, importance of uh, court cases. Uh, we cite court cases all the time, Brown versus the Board of Education, Roe versus Wade. There are these famous court cases. I'm going to give you this morning one of the most famous of all court cases of all of time in history. It's in our text this morning. It's a court case. Uh, the importance of the court case is Israel is living in idolatry, serving many gods. 
The captivity has not occurred yet. It will, because God has already decided. The text is written for their comfort in future days when they're in prison because of their idolatry. Let's look at the court case. The court scene has, of course, the gods of the nations as defendants. God is prosecutor and jury. He's going to hear the case and render a verdict, verses 21 to 24. And then in verses 25 to 29, affirm in a radical way his uniqueness as the sole true God of all of history. I want to remind you of something. I'm not saying this. God in the scriptures is saying it. And I would affirm something that's radical and that important. What scripture says, God says. What God says, scripture says. Not my opinions, but essentially the court case that is before us this morning. And it's decisive because we should build our view of God based upon this court case. If you reject the court case, then again, uh, you have a grave difficulty in not only your understanding of God, but a settled court case in legal history from the court of heaven, the highest court of all of civilization. Well, the court of heaven is going to reject the false claims of false gods. Israel has been playing around with idols. They've bought into progressivism and pluralism. Uh, everyone else is, and so they simply go along to get along. It's corrupted their faith. And so God summons the idols to make a case for their validity and worth. Again, verses 21 to 24. Uh, the reason I say that it is a court case is because of... Uh, uh, verse 21, Isaiah chapter 41, present your case. The word case in the scriptures is more literally your lawsuit. So it's, again, a forensic uh, notion. Uh, God's going to conduct a lawsuit. Uh, he's the prosecutor. All of the gods of history, all of them, are the defendants. Uh, in fact, it's really perpetuated. Bring forward your strong arguments. Bring your legal arguments into my court and establish your validity before me, the only God. That's a, the essence of the text. Uh, the people have their gods, and God sues them regarding their claim to divinity. It's very instructive in this text that it is a, uh, it is a lawsuit But this, this word for present your legal case is often used of God suing Israel uh, for following after idols. And the reason I make that statement is uh, they're watching the court scene as to how it's going to come out. You and I are watching the court scene as well, though far removed from the writing of the prophet Isaiah and far removed from the historic context, we are not removed from the decision of the court. Now first, uh, the false gods are asked to declare or predict the future, uh, the content of which in verse 22 includes uh, former things and later things. 
It's really more than just uh, declare the past. It's declare your involvement in causing the past. Predicting the future, of course, was uh, the prerogative of God as he gave it to the prophets. Uh, In the Old Testament, predicting the future was a very precise claim because if you predicted incorrectly, they stoned you because it was a prerogative of God alone to predict the future because God alone not only knows the future, he causes the future. I mean, I understand in our culture there's lots of predictions about the future. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, pretty good predictions. I think our weather people get better and better as the science of meteorology improves and improves, but Again, uh, being precise and being 100% accurate is an entirely different matter. Even they stumble on occasion, do they not? God never stumbles when it comes to predicting the future. Because he knows it, he's the author of it, and he brings it into being by the power of his presence and his essence. These two, these two words are, the former things and latter things are, I mean, they are temporal references to be sure. But they also reference the God's ability to impact history and to impose their will. That's a very powerful uh, legal uh, argument that God is asking the gods of the nations to come and bring to his court. Very interesting that these uh, these two words, the former things and latter things, uh, are found in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. of the one true God, of course. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The theology there is profound. I mean, you, 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 you see the merism, do you not? The end from the beginning? Meaning that God is sovereign over everything in between those two extremes. Nothing escapes his control and the absoluteness of his sovereign perfections. He's going to accomplish all of his good pleasure. Only God can say that. Only the one true God. In all of history, God is never frustrated. He's never discouraged. He's never biting his fingernails. He's never rubbing beads. You know why? Because only his purposes will be accomplished because of who he is as the one true God, sovereign and Lord of time and history. It's a remarkable claim. It's the affirmation of Scripture. I might say something more. Because it is the Word of God, we ought to believe it and hope in it because the Word of God is true. God is, uh, God is saying to the idols, or really the gods behind the idols, uh, you're in my courtroom, state your case, and we'll adjudicate your claim. So God is not only prosecutor, he's jury. He's going to decide the case. And then the interrogative shift to the ability to act at all in verse 23. God says, do good or evil. In other words, you false gods, do something. Do something to prove your case at court that you you are God. 
there is a sense of jest here in the courtroom because uh, God is doing something that we ought not to do. We, we should do with uh, extreme care if even uh, do it all. But God is mocking the false gods. Do something, knowing full well they can't do anything because there are no false gods. There's only one true God. God is saying, well, maybe, you know, just, just maybe I need to be afraid because there's a competitor on the block that's just like me. But again, God is mocking them because the gods are silent. The idols do not answer because they cannot answer. Let's look at a, a Psalter's affirmation of this, Psalm 115. Verses 5 to 8. Well, verse 4, the idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. Many, many religions of the world have uh, idols to represent their gods. Uh, they hire a silversmith, or sometimes if they're wealthy, they'll put some remarkable jewels, or uh, they'll make it a very imposing figure. Uh, so craftsmen have to make it. In and of itself, that's a, almost a logical fallacy. A man has to make a god. Wow. Scripture tells us that God makes man and not the other way around. But notice the description that the psalmist gives us of the idols. Verse 5, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. In other words, the uh, lawsuit in our courtroom in Isaiah chapter 41 is one in which uh, the idols cannot answer back because they can't talk. And the gods that are represented by the idols cannot either because uh, both of them uh, are non-existent. Uh, the beliefs of broken minds. Competitors in the hearts of men, to be sure, but not in historical reality. Let me... Well, so what? I mean, people rub on this and rub on that and put this statue and this building and whatnot. And I mean, what's the harm to that? Well, the psalmist is going to tell us. Look at verse 8. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. You see, there's a moral reality into worshiping a false god because people become like the gods that they serve. And that's why we are bid to worship the one true God, be fashioned over His image, the great and only Creator. The prophet Jeremiah is very instructive in uh, this regard. Again, he, like the prophet Isaiah, condemns the nation uh, for their terrible idolatry. Uh, Isaiah chapter, pardon me, Jeremiah chapter 2, in the fifth verse, latter part of the verse. They went far from me, and walked after emptiness and became empty. You pursue the wrong thing, it's going to make you over. Worshiping false gods is transformational. More than that, it's an incredible moral event. I'm reminded of the terrible emptiness in our own culture, the pursuit of chemistry for happiness. 
you lose God, you set your course on a path of incredible, radical emptiness. It's not just a cul-de-sac, it's a dead end with tragic consequences. But the point of the court case, God is uh, asking the false gods to adjudicate their case. They can't because they can't talk. They can't do good or evil because they can't act at all. And so, this courtroom scene uh, has uh, the claims of the false gods uh, totally rejected because they cannot answer, uh, predict the future, cause the future. And they cannot impose their will upon the ways of man. There's only one true God that can do that, who does that. And that is the one true God of history. Again, in the words of the Catechism, there's but one only, the living and true God. And so in verse 24, there's an indictment. Again, this is the Supreme Court of Heaven, the highest court imaginable, gives an indictment to the nation of Israel for their idolatry. Verse 24, Isaiah chapter 41, Behold, you are of no account, and your works account to nothing he who chooses you as an abomination. The reality is that the gods know nothing, predict nothing, influence nothing because they are non-existent. Again, I understand that's a powerful statement. If I was on some university campus or somewhere in the public square, I'd be round, resoundingly laughed or told to shut up and go away and people would probably pick up whatever it is they could reach it and throw at me for such a terrible statement. But these aren't my words. They're words of the living God. God makes this claim. Uh, he says their claims are false and their followers are an abomination to God. It's a very harsh term. Uh, but again, it's not my term. Uh, our culture is tolerant and accepting of every religion and every claim of deity. And that may be fine for our culture. I'm just saying God is not. He rejects them all. Uh, the text is a powerful reminder of why we cannot buy into the philosophy that all religions are the same and that their adherents will all inherit eternal life. I, I, I simply bring you the words of the Scripture. The Christian faith is exclusive. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Now I understand that wouldn't be a popular statement in a religious class in the university, academia, uh, on and on we could go. Uh, I'm just giving to you the divine claim and the decision of the divine court. I can be respectful in civil society well enough, but these are the words of God, who's adjudicating a claim in his own courtroom. A verse that I occasionally quote, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. 
that the Apostle Luke is ransacking all of history for another name save the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, there's not one. There is but one only. One agent of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other claim is false. That's the claim of heaven. That's the claim of this court. Isaiah chapter 41. And so in verses 25 to 29, God is going to counter with his ability to predict and to control future with one illustrative event. Again, the nation will soon be carried away into Babylonian captivity. And God in his sovereign power will raise up a Persian ruler who will politically set them free. And God is now in advance foretelling that event. Verses 25 to 29. The lifeless idols are silent. God is not. He answers with a divine action. God's going to raise up Cyrus who will smash all opposition and set in motion the second exodus. Again, I remind you of this startling claim of this heavenly court, if you will, the Supreme Court. Not the one that meets in Washington, D.C., as important as that court plays in our own lives. But I'm telling you of a court higher than the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. It's going to answer with a divine action, the raising up of Cyrus in the second exodus. Then only God can deliver on the promise of salvation, and that's what he's going to begin to do with Cyrus. From the divine perspective, the actions are so certain in our text that they are represented as past events. That's how certain the prophet and God is of his ability to affect the raising up of Cyrus. He says, I've aroused one from the north, and he has come. He will come from the east, the rising of the sun. Again, Persia would be to the east, but his invasion route is going to be from the north. expression of this in the historic book, uh, book of uh, Ezra, a prophetic uh, affirmation of the coming of Cyrus, written again uh, as an expression of the power of God to affect his will upon the hearts of the kings of the earth. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus could have seen God as the pinnacle of the gods, uh, certainly true of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not saying Cyrus uh, was a Christian, was a monotheist. Uh, not sure exactly the precision of his acknowledgement of God, but could be, again, his acknowledgement that God was at the pinnacle of all the gods, that all the gods were subordinate to him. But that's not enough. God has no subordinates regardless of what Cyrus claims. Or the text could be a figure of speech in which his confession 
It's substituted for the testimony of his actions which are caused by God. And that's exactly what Ezra says, that God was going to raise up Cyrus and give him military success and set the people free from captivity. The point is that God delivers. Idols do not, and neither do the gods that they represent. The divine judge then has a series of interrogatives, oftentimes courtroom. Legal proceedings are interrogatives. These are gods, verse 26. Who's declared these things? The answer in rapid fire order. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 26. Surely there is no one who has declared. Surely there is no one who proclaimed. Surely no one heard your words. Why is that? Because the gods of the nations do not exist. They are the creations of the imaginations of fallen men. Everything and everyone is silent save the one true God who is solitary in His perfections and so unique that it is not just that there are no comparisons, but there is only one God. And that's God proclaimed in Scripture alone. There are no claims or testimonials that can stand in His court save that of Christ alone. God asks for the gods to answer. They are silent. No one can give an answer. Beyond that, God is the only answer. And his answer are in Holy Scripture. It's very interesting uh, that the text uh, uh, asks for answers, asks for a counselor, someone to come forward who can predict the future, who can give an answer to the estate of man. There's silence in the courtroom. God's going to answer his own question, beginning in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. The first of four great servant songs pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the world and all of the religions, there are answers, but none of them can stand in the court of heaven. There's but one answer, and that is the great servant son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He asks for the world to answer. The world is silent, so he answers. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. The first great servant song attesting to the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who comes to effect salvation acceptable before the supreme court of all of time and history. In other words, God has the answers in God alone. The section concludes with another parallel indictment, verse 29. All of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Name all the religions of the world. Pack them into that statement. Uh, This is the divine verdict on them all. Ad infinitum. Fill in the blanks. There's 
consigned to the scrap heap of the words of God. The court has met, given its verdict. There's none but the God of Scripture in all of history, in time and civilization. All will be proven false but Him because He alone is the one true God of history. Our faith has an exclusive founder in an utterly exclusive way. It's very interesting that the the final sentence is, uh, in my own mind, quite ironic. Idols are wind and emptiness. Wouldn't mean much uh, to the uh, English reader, uh, but to a Jewish reader in the Babylonian captivity would uh, mean a profound, uh, have profound significance. The word for a wind is ruach. We find it first occurrence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the ruach of God hovering over the creation, about to act, about to speak, and bring all of civilization into existence. It's important for a captive that's issued a promise because it reminds them that God alone can create. God created and framed the universe, and so he can create freedom from captivity and a new exodus and start again with the people of God. New creation, because God alone creates. Uh, The other word that's very significant here is uh, emptiness. Hebrew word's tohu, again, found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, the earth was without forms, tohu. Something radical had happened to the earth. It had no form. And what happens is, is God speaks and form erupts to obey the voice of the living and the one true God. It's a remarkable attestation that only God can create. There's only but one creator. And that is the God of Scripture. It's a reminder, I think, from the text to those who are soon to be found in captivity that God's going to make a new creation and start a new exodus. They will go back to the land. And historically, you know what happened? Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back to the land, they rebuilt the temple. So it's a reminder to us as the church of Jesus Christ that the great creator for us is Jesus Christ. Uh, He begins the last great exodus and immigration, the last great movement of the earth uh, to the great destiny in the heavenlies uh, by Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the people of God, the Creator of the church, for this theology ultimately ends pointing to Christ and His coming as uh, the sovereign Creator of the church. And so, God alone is the answer to the predicament of man. He alone is God and He alone saves. Everything else is an empty promise. A puff of wind, a blade of grass that will eventually fade. All religions promise only God can deliver. I went to a movie yesterday. uh, Walt Disney movie. Remake of Beauty and the Beast. 
Much to my chagrin, I went to the movie. It has a new creation scene in it, a remarkable theology in that movie. I was struck by the theology of it. The love of man. You compare the love of man with the love of God. You don't know love unless you know the love of God. And all of the majesty, the description of the love of God, 1 Corinthians 13, and the gift of the Son of God, John chapter 3 and verse 16. My friend, that is love. That love is transformative. The love of that movie was almost corruptive, immoral. But then there's this new creation scene where the castle is made over and uh, the candlestick becomes a human being and on and on. It's a fairy tale. It's make-believe. And that's the best religions can offer. But our faith is different. Because our God can truly create. He has and He will by His sovereign power. The Scripture is no fairy tale. Truth, prediction of the coming of the Son of God. He came. He accomplished salvation. Think of it in this way. In all of civilization, in all of history, there is but one empty tomb. I mean, I can assure you if the Pharisees and Sadducees could have found the body of Jesus, they would have done so to totally destroy the Christian faith in one fell swoop moment. But the tomb was empty because Christ had risen from the dead by His sovereign power. And by the way, only He can make tombs empty, and that is what He will do the day of His coming. To pick one faith that has always amazed me, Joseph Smith, angel comes and gives him some golden tablets and then takes them away. How can you establish that historic validity? The angel gives them and takes them away and he's the only witness? You understand the radical nature of that in terms of the Christian faith? Our problem is we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts, historic validity, historic historiography that is without peer. Beyond an empty tomb, incredible documentary evidence in terms of manuscripts. Eyewitnesses time and again. Simply think of one, the Apostle Paul. I, mean, I understand that you know, men die for lies all the time, but not for known lies. The Apostle Paul encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And at one point, he was a hater of the Christian faith. And when he saw the resurrected Christ, he came to faith by the power of God. Eyewitness, he saw. Our faith is based upon hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Not some make-believe story about an angel delivering golden tablets and then taking them away only to be validated by the man who presumes to start a false religion. That's the way of man. 
believe in fairy tales. Of course, these bona fides include Christ and his ability to predict, to influence, and to fill the eternal purposes of God. Let me give you a few of them. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. He comes to save his people, and that is what he did. On the cross, he cries, it is finished. He accomplished it in one great final eternal event. He not only promised it, he delivers it. He saved his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. The gates of hell will not overpower the church. Will not overpower the church. All over the world, the church is threatened, persecuted. Christians are killed. They won't win the battle. The promise of Christ is true. Century after century, the people of God continue their witness, continue their stand. Many religions come and go. Most of the ancient ones we have long since forgotten and passed. Christianity lives forever because its Savior lives forever. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Christ says, they will deliver the Son of Man over to the hands of evil men. They will kill Him and He will be raised up on the third day. The founders went to the tomb, as you know, removed from Easter, saddened over the death of their Savior, looking to anoint His body to prepare Him for a fitting burial. And what do they find? An empty tomb. And their lives are radically changed every day thereafter. John chapter 14, verse 16 Christ promises the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And what happens is a radical change in the church. Formerly, the apostles were all hiding. They were scared to death. They were frightened. The Spirit of God comes, empowers them to give witness. And what a great witness it was and survives to this very day. And Scripture affirms the new creation and the last great exodus will achieve its ultimate and final fulfillment because Jesus is sovereign. Sovereign creator. Firstborn of the dead. Empty tomb. He lives because He is God. And the past is our guarantee of the future not just in this remarkable work we call Holy Scripture with all of its manuscript evidence, the testimony it gives of the living, resurrected Savior. He controls the future. His people will not be destroyed and the faith will live and be blessed in all eternity. And so Isaiah chapter 41 is a very difficult text in our modern-day progressive pluralistic culture. The Supreme Court of Heaven calls all of the gods into the courtroom and asks them to predict the future, to tell him how they controlled the past, what they did. And there is silence. 
and God is about to speak in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. The answer of heaven to all religions and every culture is decisive. This great text, if you will, I'll name the case, God versus idols. The Supreme Court of all time and eternity has totally, finally, irrevocably, and irreversibly discredited all claims of deity save the one true God and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The legal matter is settled, closed forever. There's no appeal. I might add, there's no hope but Him. You're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I simply have given you a court case, the greatest court case uh, perhaps uh, for our culture and our civilization today that follows 10,000 gods and 10,000 claims. This is a divine claim. There's but one only, the living and true God, who was given to the church, His only begotten Son, to pay the penalty for the sins of His people, to die for them, to take their place, to be their substitute, and then to rise again in glorious certainty that He is God. Because only God can shepherd beyond the grave. And only God can conquer the grave. And so it is the great legal case of the prophet Isaiah. Only one God who promises salvation, who alone can deliver, who is the ever-present hope of the church. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to ponder those claims, to read the court case over and over and over again and come to the realization that there is but one. Are there more gods than one? There's but one only. The living and true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, the only Redeemer of God's people. No hope apart from Him, only hope in Him. 